Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 32, Boosting Stress Resilience for Employees, featuring Dr. Andrew Chate. Welcome to Workforce Health Engagement, a show exploring strategies to improve your employees' health and productivity and to protect your bottom line. Join us as industry experts discuss how to engage employees in population health management, wellness, and healthcare consumerism. This is a special series by the producers of the top-rated podcast, Engaging Leader. And now, with 20 years of experience as a communication consultant to Fortune 500 companies, helping engage hundreds of thousands of employees, here's your host, Jesse Leahy. Welcome to the show, Engagers. Stress is the new fact. It makes us sick, depletes us emotionally, and diminishes our quality of life. That's a quote from Jan Bruce. She's the co-author of Mequilibrium and the CEO of the company Mequilibrium. And today I'm excited to be interviewing her fellow co-author, Dr. Andrew Chate, who is the chief medical officer for Mequilibrium. He's also a psychologist and research professor in the College of Medicine at the University of Arizona. He's a Brookings Institution fellow. And he spent more than 20 years researching resilience and has established stress resilience programs that are operating around the world. His work has improved productivity and performance at organizations ranging from NASA to Fortune 100 companies, including Comcast and HP. And the crux of his philosophy and approach to stress management is training employees to tackle seven core components, uh, not to attempt to eliminate stress, but to improve their ability to handle stress. According to the American Psychological Association, 75% of people say they are overloaded with stress. Obviously, that takes a toll on the quality of work and life. It muddies our thinking and impairs judgment, and it causes people to burn out and quit their jobs. Andrew is going to talk to us about some third-party research that that he has uh, that shows that people, however, who develop what he calls stress re- resilience are more are four times more likely to have high job satisfaction and half as likely to quit and five times as likely to have very good or excellent health. Now, we can't it's it's not realistic to imagine that we can help employees eliminate the ad- adverse adversities of life or the things necessarily about their jobs uh, that that cause stress, but we can teach them resilience to stress. So today we're going to talk about how to help employees understand the root causes of stress and how to rewire their thought patterns so they are better able to manage that stress, better able to move into more helpful patterns of problem-solving for example, rather than reacting negatively to stress. As most of our listeners know, almost every EAP program has a stress component of it. But unfortunately, the research shows that only 3 to 5% of employees take advantage of employee assistance programs. And as Andrew's going to share today, what they've been doing with their online program, Mequilibrium, has had much greater adoption rates and much greater success rates. The resilience approach of stress management is a very realistic and holistic approach. It's something that's very teachable and learnable, and based on the data, it it has been proven to make a big difference. So I'm very excited to talk to Andrew about boosting stress resilience for employees. Andrew Chate, welcome to the show. Jesse, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. 
Andrew, what do you mean by resilience? It's a great question, Jesse, because it's the most fundamental question. We realized back in the mid-90s that the key to being able to boost resilience was answering that question. And when we first realized that we were in the resilience business, uh, we went to some of the leading world experts in hardiness and grit and coping and said, you know, we're thinking that what we do is in the resilience space. What is that? And they would say to us things like it's steering through or bouncing back or overcoming. And we'd thank them very much, but we'd kind of scratch our heads <laughs> as graduate students, young at the time, and say to each other, no, that's not the answer. That's what resilient people do. That's how people use their resilience, but it's not what it is. So beginning in the mid 90s, we began a series of research to really titrate out the basic ingredients of resilience. And we've come to the conclusion that while there are many, there are seven primary ones that we all need to be aware of. I want to dig into those seven, but I, I first, when I first heard the term resilience, I guess I assumed it meant toughing it out. And you just used the word grit. And I thought, yeah, grit, that sounds about right. But I think you're saying right off the bat that a lot of us have a, a misconception of what resilience is about. It's not just toughing it out. It really isn't. And for a lot of people, that's what it means. It means banging your head against that wall because somehow that's the right or noble thing to do. Um, you know, for some people, for many people, resilience is um, staying in problem solving mode longer than they otherwise would. Um, but for, for some others, it's actually knowing when to give up. And the problem is that um, often we don't realize when we should stay in and when we should give up. People have often asked me to reduce down my definition of what resilience is. And to be honest, I, I really cannot reduce it below the seven ingredients that make it up. Okay, so go ahead. Tell us what the seven ingredients are. Well, the first one is really your ability to control your feelings when you're under pressure, under the gun, facing an adversity. We call that emotion regulation, and it's absolutely key. And then related to that is impulse control. And, and this is probably the one of the seven that's most closely related to this new concept of grit. And that's, that's the ability to control your impulses to behave in a way that may not be um, in line with your goals when you hit an adversity. And then there's just brute problem solving, your ability to solve a problem. And we're, we're very good at, at understanding how problem solving goes wrong and what causes it. Um, and we're able to build that in people. And then there's a sense of self-efficacy, your belief in yourself, your, your belief that you have mastery in the world and that you're gonna be able to take care of almost anything that comes your way. Now, if you're a good problem solver and you, and you believe in yourself, then you should be optimistic, which is the fifth ingredient. But we're talking about a realistic optimism here. We're talking about um, an optimism that's in line with reality. And the sixth ingredient is empathy. And this seems to be key for people to build a social support network um, that can buoy them when times are tough. And then the final piece is a piece that most people don't think about. And that's actually not just dealing with the bad stuff, but dealing well with the good stuff. So making the most of opportunities and challenges that come your way, and we call that reaching out. If you have those seven ingredients in place, you're gonna be golden in terms of resilience. So that really surprises me because I think, and, and, and probably a lot of our listeners, if, if we said, hey, we're going to put in place a new stress management program, um, I get, and it's going to have seven components, I think 
a lot of us would have assumed that those components would be things like mindfulness and meditation and breathing exercises and physical exercise. And so what, what do you say to people that express that? I, well, I guess, is that, am, I, am I accurate? Do a lot of people, are they surprised when you, when you tell them about the seven components? No, they're really not. For most people, they are, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And then, you know, we, we have the capacity to measure their resilience on these seven and, and prepare them a resilience profile. And when they see that profile, they're like, this is a mirror. I never thought of it this way, but now that I'm looking into it, it feels like I'm looking into a mirror and this profile totally gets me. But you're right. Most people, um, when they think of boosting resilience, think about building the things that you mentioned. And that's why it's very important to draw a distinction between what resilience is and how you go about boosting it. And I would say that there's a place for mindfulness and meditation, um, uh, exercise, nutrition, diet, uh, in, all, uh, in all of the kinds of things that get talked about. Uh, in, in, there's a role for those in resilience. And I think that's because a lot of a lot of these concepts are highly integrated, and that's that's a part of the work that we've been doing at Equilibrium. So, can you give us an example um, of how one or more of the these seven components would help someone who is, let's say, they're overwhelmed with uh, with work, and that's what's causing the stress? They're just uh, chronically overworked. Absolutely. Well, one of the keys is emotion regulation. I consider it to be the first among equals of the seven ingredients that make up resilience. And in fact, our work has shown that unless you can help someone become emotion regulated, it's very difficult to boost the other six. So we typically start with that one. Now, what we've learned over time in the research that we've done since the early 90s is that one of the reasons that people have difficulty with emotion regulation is that each and every one of us builds an emotion radar. This is a way of scanning the world. And some people have learned in their family of origin to scan for violations of their rights. So they're constantly scanning to see who's messing with them now. And they tend to get angry a lot of the time. Some people have learned to scan with a radar looking for future threat. And they tend to get anxious a lot of the time. Others are scan scanning for loss and they tend to get sad. Some are scanning for a loss of standing among their peers. They tend to get embarrassed a lot of the time. Some are scanning for the resources they don't have rather than the resources they do. And they get frustrated a lot of the time. So we know that these emotion radars can make a tough situation even worse. In other words, there may be a justification for an emotional response to an adversity, but these emotion radars inflate that emotional response and really put us behind the eight ball in terms of resilience. So if we can show people what their emotion radar is and teach them a concrete skill to get around it so that the kind and level of emotion that they have in an adversity is commensurate with that adversity, um, then we can get them calm and focused pretty quickly. And that makes all the difference in the other ingredients of resilience too, including the ability to get into problem-solving mode quickly. Hmm. One of the things that, uh, that jumped out at me when I was reading your book, Equilibrium, 14 Days to Cooler, Calmer, and Happier, is right up front, you tackle this question of why stress management is so hard. And part of that is because the more stressed you are, the less able you are to make the changes that would alleviate it. You know, you just don't even have the, 
the energy, I guess, or the perspective to start making the changes that would make a difference. And I'm wondering, how do you, when you, when you're in place in a in a program uh, within an organization, how do you start to help people on a broad level actually uh, implement changes when they're just dealing with all that overwhelm and stress? That's a really good question. We start with their greatest vulnerability, but let me revisit that in just a little bit. Um, You're absolutely right. Uh, The more stressed we are, the less able we are to cope with it. And there's a reason for that. Each and every one of us develops habits in how we think and view the world. Now, sometimes they're emotion radars. We've also been able to identify seven thinking traps that people are very vulnerable to. We also know that people develop these iceberg beliefs, big belief systems they have about how the world should be and how they should be in the world. And we call them icebergs, Jesse, because only the tip of the iceberg is really in our conscious awareness. Most of it is below the surface of our awareness, like an iceberg has most of its volume below the surface of the water. And we also develop thinking styles around how we explain events, which can really affect our ability to do good problem solving. So these thinking styles are habits that we've developed. And by the time we're in middle childhood, they're pretty strong habits. Now, like any habit, they're easy. So when we're under stress, we actually tend to revert to these tired old habits more than if we're not under stress. And it's these tired old habits and how we think that really drag us down in terms of resilience and stress management. Yeah, they're basically <laughs> patterns that we've fallen into or like wheel ruts. And it's you're, you, as you're going along and you've got plenty of energy, you can keep yourself out of those ruts. But when you're stressed, you're just more, much more likely to fall back into them. Exactly. It's a great metaphor and it's, it's very apt. Um, that's exactly what happens with thinking styles. And you know, we've done a lot of research on them, but the reality is that most people, the vast majority, 99.99% of people are just not aware of them um, and they're not aware of what theirs are. We can actually hold up a mirror and let people see what their thinking styles are, where they're helping them and where they're hurting them and teach them very concrete skills to get around them. So tell me a little bit about the Equilibrium program. How, I mean, because what you're describing, I'm picturing on-site facilitators uh, that, and, and with lots of one-on-one sort of counseling. And I think you've been able to scale the program a lot more than that. Yeah, that's right. Equilibrium's offering is, an, is actually an online program. So we took the offline work that I and my colleagues had done in creating live trainings And then in combining forces with Jan Bruce, who serves as Equilibrium CEO and was in Martha Stewart Living for many years um, and had now dedicated her career to beating stress, we combined forces and decided that since stress was an epidemic, named so by the World Health Organization as as the epidemic of the 21st century, Um, When you're dealing with something that is spreading virally, you need to have a a viral solution. So we had to have something that we could scale and going online was the obvious move. So that meant a couple of things. Firstly, there are pluses and minuses with an online program. 
in a live training, you know that people are going to get a dose because there's a lot of social pressure to stay in that workshop for the day and not walk out. So at the end of the day, you can guarantee that a participant has got a dose of your solution. That's not the case online. They can click off at any time. So we have to make it engaging and we have to make it purely relevant to them. Now, on that second note, um, one of the advantages of going online is that you can customize a solution to the individual. You can't do that in a live training. If 200 people show up for one of my workshops, regardless of what their idiosyncratic needs are, I'm going to put them through the same one-day process. So the very first thing we did was to develop an assessment, a equilibrium assessment that evaluated them across a number of factors of resilience and stress and well-being, life management and wellness, including physical health, mental health, emotional health, um, this, what's going on in their lives, um, relationship quality, etc. And based on that, we gave them a very individual profile that showed their strengths and vulnerabilities across these factors. And we developed an algorithm that would then send them to solutions that they most needed in the order in which they needed them. And we'd sequence it so that it would have a, um, a spillover effect so that each skill that they went through was beautifully set up for the next skill. So it's that customization that I think um, is absolutely key. And in fact, when we do research and we randomly select a thousand of our users, on average, only about two have the same skills um, provided to them out of our 50 odd um, skill set and typically not not in the same order. So it is tightly customized. And I think that's, that's key. Hmm. Yeah, that's really fascinating. How What's the experience like for the user? How much time uh, does it take? What are they committing to? People vary greatly on how much time they spend in the program. Um, we have uh, about eight units that are introductory and get at the basic concepts of resilience and thinking styles. And each one of those takes around about 20 minutes. Typically, there's a video component and then an application to their life, discussion of a concrete skill, and we send them out to use it. But in addition, for people who don't have that kind of linear mindset, and we know that adults learn in a myriad of different ways, we have a number of ways that people can access these skills. They can rely on push emails that we send out. Um, we can we can help them uh, assign themselves activities. So um, if sticking to a nutritious diet is one of their key goals, then what we can do is just on their lunchtime, they can schedule daily a reminder that they should go with the kale salad rather than the burger. <laughs> or we know that one of the ways that we can boost resilience is, is have people volunteer their time to a worthwhile cause. So we can remind them that this weekend doing such uh, would be a good idea. And different people access the program um, in different mixes of those. And so they're spending different amounts of time in the program. Can you share with us what the, I, the, the target client is for Equilibrium? Is there a certain size, uh, organizational size, and, and what kind of uh, like costs should, should uh, potential clients be aware of? You know, the, we don't have a target size. Because this is an online solution, any organization um, can tap into this um, 
we, we certainly do have volume pricing and I would encourage people to contact Equilibrium if they were interested in that because as chief science officer that goes well beyond my bailiwick, um, <laughs> way, way above my pay grade. So um, I'm more on the science side of things. But um, what we found is that compared to our competitors, our pricing is extremely competitive. Um, we, we, as an online solution, it's no extra effort for us if a thousand people are accessing the program versus a hundred thousand. Um, so really we can cater and tailor make this to companies, um, with just a, a couple of thousand people, but we're also working with global entities that have, you know, 300,000 employees. Hmm. What are, what are some of the examples of, of the existing, uh, clients that Equilibrium has? Unfortunately, I need to keep that confidential, Jesse. Okay. Um, but the interesting thing about our experience has been um, that we have an, an incredible variety. So we have, as I said, relatively small organizations that are quite boutique in their industry. And we have some really major trophy clients that are Fortune 500 and and major operators globally. And it, it seems to vary enormously by industry. Um, we're really, we really have a cross-section of clients across industries. What we find is that people find our skill set to be a really great toolbox. So it doesn't have a squishy therapy soft skills feel to it. It feels very much like a hard-nosed toolbox that people can use um, very quickly and readily. And so um, we often find that the people who are most excited by our product are those in um, more hard-nosed industry like the financial sector or the tech industry. Um, they seem to find that this approach to resilience um, and wellness is something that their people um, can access better than others. Some of the uh, empirical findings that you have are pretty fascinating on the importance of teaching resilience, not just as, oh, this is a nice thing to do from a wellness perspective, but on a real uh, to, uh, results basis for the, for the company in terms of their productivity and profitability. Can you share some of those figures for us? Yeah, one of the first things that we did as an entity was to bring in an objective third-party consultant. Um, she and her organization um, were very experienced in um, cost and utilization and, and being able to crunch those kinds of numbers. And one of the studies that she did was to take our measure of resilience give it to 2,000 people that she recruited, and also get them to take other inventories, state-of-the-art questionnaires that measured all of the things that employers care about, um, absenteeism, presenteeism, um, levels of depression, net promoter scores, intention to quit, levels of burnout, um, symptoms of anxiety, including somatic physical symptoms of anxiety, um, perceived stress, on and on and on levels of engagement, et cetera. And what we found was, and, and in this study, she very neatly divided the resilience um, scores into quartiles. And what we found was that every quartile increase in resilience 
produced a quartile um, increase in those. So the more resilient you were, the less intent to quit, the more resilient, the less burnout, the less depression and so on. So we were able to see that resilience is absolutely core to these outcomes. We've also been able to show that we can boost resilience um, in our population. And when we do that, we see that we get improvement on all of those outcomes as well, as long as as well as outcomes that might be of specific interest to our clients. Uh, we had one client, for example, who provided insurance not only to their employees, but also to their spouses. And they were interested in keeping those costs down by improving the physical health of their people. So they were interested in, you know, good and bad cholesterol, BMI, um, heart rate, blood pressure. Um, and what we found was that when people went through our resilience program, they left high-risk categories that they otherwise were in compared to a control group. For other organizations, they discovered that their people just are very low on engagement. Um, and they weren't really aware of that, but their people took the MeQ assessment, and that's what uh, was indicated. And so for them, that's what's absolutely key, and we've been able to get improvements on that as well. Yeah, that's fascinating, because I, I wondered, when I saw some of the numbers that that you all were sharing, for example, the those who score high in resilience are, are five times as likely to have very good or excellent health and half as likely to quit as other employees. My my very first question was, so first of all, is there is this really a, a causality something or is it showing causality or is it just that healthy and happy people um, naturally are this way? But you've been able to train people in the, the art of resilience and get uh, in, in improvements in those types of um, core outcomes. Exactly. So, yeah, that first study that we did was correlational, but subsequently we've been able to do the work where we boost resilience and then watch improvements in these other variables. So, and we, we can do good path analytic kind of research that shows um, the the process of causality and its direction. It's very clear that resilience sits under all of these important workplace values, and if we can boost resilience, then we're going to boost those outcomes as well. Do you have any data on ongoing usage by employees? So, you know, if if a company were to implement the program, how many employees might take part in it, and then is it is it just a ten week long program, and then they kind of drop off, or is there sort of an ongoing? Uh, experience that that they continue to find helpful. Yeah, it's a great question too. You know, we get upwards of sixty, high sixties, and seventy percent of adoption of our program um, when it's rolled out universally in an, in an organization. And I think since people haven't yet had an experience with our program, that's less of a testament to the to our program than it is to just how much stress is out there <laughs> and how much people are looking for a solution. And perhaps how much our existing programs ha have failed people. Um, so we get massive sign up. And then when people come in to do our assessment, around about 88% of those who start it complete it. And then they all go into the program. Um, we get some natural attrition to be sure. But um, one of the ways that we've been able to prevent that is having these multifaceted ways of of educating people based on good instructional design. So, hey, you know, that linear process of going through the skills you've been assigned isn't working for you, schedule some activities. 
um, or listen, read this push email for you know weekly advice. What we find, we've ha- we now have clients who've been in the program three years and longer. The, the the idea is that this program is eternal, and we're constantly creating new contact, a uh, new content rather, for our our long term clients so that they can continue to benefit. Um, and we have a lot of refreshes, et cetera. What we find is that for most people, the way that they access the program changes as they become more long-term clients. So an individual participant, um, they might get assigned something like 20 skills based on their vulnerabilities. We ask them to complete maybe one every three weeks or a month uh, and work on that you know, very strongly. So they can be just in the skills part of the program for 18 months to two years. And they might start to then wean themselves off the skills and spend more time since they now have the knowledge base, just scheduling supporting activities that will keep the skills they've developed in place. Um, By and large, we don't see a drop off in the numbers of people participating. We just see a difference in how they interact with the program. So that is really fascinating, and if, if I heard you right, when in general, when when equilibrium is implemented in an organization, among the overall organization, not just people who self-select as being stressed, sixty to seventy percent of all employees <coughs> ad, uh, sign up for the program and get started in it. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and you know, we we work very hard with organizations to to optimize that onboarding process. So we work with them around how they communicate the program to their employees. Um, We often have on-site kickoffs where we promote the program. So we work hard to cast the net as widely as we can. Um, But I think think more than anything, um, what this shows um, is just how needed a program like this is out there. And let's face it, you know, our traditional programs aren't being accessed. You know, we, we can see again and again and again that upwards of 75% of our people say that they are stressed to the max, um, but only about 3% are accessing um, EAP programs or current offerings. Um, so there's a real mismatch um, in need versus um access to these skills, uh, uptake of these of these skills. And, and we consider ourselves to be disruptive in that respect, um, that we want to close that gap. We know there's an enormous need and we want to create, we wanted to create a consumer grade product that would attract everybody and keep them in. Andrew, where can people find out more about your work and, and what's going on with Mequilibrium? I would suggest they access our website. There's a lot of good contact information there, Jesse, which is www.mequilibrium. That's equilibrium with an M on the front, dot com. Um, and there's a whole slew of contact information there. They can download um, information that they can share with colleagues and friends, um, and they can reach out to, to one of our employees to get more information about the program as well. Very good. Dr. Andrew Chate, thanks for joining us on Workforce Health Engagement. A pleasure, Jesse. Thank you so much. All right, Engagers, that wraps up this episode. However, Dr. Andrew Chate will return soon for an upcoming Engaging Leader podcast about how to become a stress-resilient leader, including developing resilience personally, mentoring team members to develop their resilience, and creating a resilient workplace. Don't miss it.
You can find both the Workforce Health Engagement Podcast and the Engaging Leader Podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, and on our website at engagingleader.com. Again, the website where you can find out about Andrew's program is mequilibrium.com. That's equilibrium with an M at the beginning. And Andrew's newest book is Mequilibrium, 14 Days to Cooler, Calmer, and Happier. And we'll provide all the information and links on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at engagingleader.com forward slash WHE32, as in Workforce Health Engagement, Episode 32. Workforce Health Engagement is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm that specializes in workforce communications, helping mid-size and large employers attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results in several areas, not only health engagement, but also talent management, benefits and compensation, business transformation, and more. Find us at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Monica Harrison, our producer, Tom Hitchcock, our programming director, Cecily Leahy, our web intern, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Max Brody, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, over the long term, a program of the day won't help you boost employee health, productivity, and your bottom line. Nope. For sustainable success, you need an integrated approach to workforce health engagement.